Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike. And Ian. Ah, thank you, Ian. And we're starting right back at the very beginning. Ian, last time we were on Chapter 1 of Master and Commander. Can you bring us up to speed and tell us what we might be listening to today? Of course. Mike, last time, formerly Lieutenant Aubrey got his promotion. He became Master and Commander, called out of custom Captain Aubrey, just after he'd met this fella, Mr. Maturin, at a concert in Mahon. They had come close to fighting a duel over their grouchiness at each other in this concert, but in light of Jack's promotion, goodwill and sunny dispositions have taken over and complete with hot chocolate furiously whipped. They began their friendship, which we've got to say has some promise for this whole canon. Maybe it's going to run the last 20 novels. We'll see. Meanwhile, back aboard the Sophie, Jack had experienced the solitude of command for the first time. And Mike, this week we're in chapter two, and let's say right away, chapter two is absolutely rammed. It's packed with great stuff. We're going to take chapter two, folks, in two pieces. So this week is the first part of chapter two. Jack and Mr. Maturin, they're going to sit down and eat some dinner. They're going to find out about life in the Navy, and we are going to find out a little bit about how Maturin came to be in Mahon. Meanwhile, Her Majesty's brig sloop, the Sophie, gets a new lieutenant with a mysterious non-connection to Maturin. And Jack's problem of not enough hands is kind of solved, but the crew's problems might be only just beginning. Thanks so much, Ian. Yeah, this is this is going to be great. And we remember, you know, when we left last week, Jack was walking to meet Mr. Matron, you know, and we yeah. still only know him as Mr. Matron. And he refers to Matron in his mind as an equal. And O'Brien told us right there at the end, there was a little greater eagerness in his step than the mere Lieutenant Aubrey would have shown. And perhaps now, as you said, Ian, that, you know, after that experience of that solitude of command, perhaps as a captain, you know, Jack is thinking that meeting with an equal is just a little bit more exciting. And he's, he's really looking forward to that. And we join them, Aubrey and Matron, dining at the Crown. Jack's in there. And right here, as we begin the chapter, we hear them talking. Allow me to press you to a trifle of this ragout mutton, sir, said Jack. Well, if you insist, said Stephen Matron, it is so very good. Now, you know, some of us might be thinking, well, why are we reading out that line? But we have now just heard Stephen's Christian name for the first time in the canon (laughs) all through chapter one. We didn't know who Matron was uh, in terms of first name here. So Jack tells Stephen that he very carefully ordered five dishes in his best Spanish, but has only received three dishes and two of them aren't what he ordered. And Jack says, and I'll quote here, I'm ashamed of having nothing better to offer you, but it was not from want of goodwill, I do assure you. And Matrim replies, I have not eaten so well for many a day, nor with a bow in such pleasant company upon my word, said Stephen Matrim. So now now that we know Stephen's first name, we're going to hear it a lot and glad of it here. Yeah, very good. And it's funny as well, we're going to learn all the way through the canon just how easy Jack finds it to make himself misunderstood in English. 
And with that in mind, it's no surprise that he's found it really easy to make himself misunderstood in Spanish. Now, who knows what string of, you know, shouted words with vowels at the end he might have used when he was trying to order these dishes. And Stephen very, very gently tries to point out that there might have been a really fundamental error. Perhaps it's because you used Castilian Spanish rather than Catalan. And Jack is absolutely astonished, blindsided by the idea that there's more than one language that you might use when speaking to people that you otherwise regard as Spaniards. But, but Jack assumes it's just a putain. And we'll come back to where the word comes from in a second. Just a, you know, a, a, a variation, essentially the same language. And Stephen says, no, it's a, it's a finer language, Catalan. He says the two are mutually incomprehensible. As different, he says, with a nice little musical reference here, as Gluck and Mozart. And perhaps, he says, so the word that you mean is patois. Now, Patois, as Stephen suggests, is a word that in French just means dialect. Putain, the word that Jack used, uh, means whore. And this is probably the first actual gag in the canon. As Jack says, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure I heard that other word somewhere before. And I can't think for the life of me where it would have been. Ah, so there you go. The, the, this is a pattern that's going to go on, isn't it? Jack misspeaking and Stephen very politely setting him straight again. Yeah, and, and you know... We, we dive kind of right into that. So, you know, Stephen's explaining kind of, you know, parsing Jack's attempt at Spanish and, you know, what they actually had delivered. And he explains or tries to explain some of the dishes to Jack, what they actually are. And wild boar is easy enough to explain. And then Jack asks him about, you know, what are these well-tasting, soft, dark things cooked with the boar? And Stephen's thinking, well, gosh, I don't know that it has a name in your language, in a, in a natural language. But as a naturalist, I can always use Linnaeus's classification system and, and call them Boletus edulis. And here we get, you know, one of O'Brien's first loves, this natural philosophy, botany, plants, animals, birds, all of this. And we've got our fingers crossed that we might be pulling into port long enough to bring our natural philosopher, James Albright, back up to the lever's hole to help us work through a lot of this in this chapter here. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I believe what Stephen is referring to is what we might call, uh, it's a mushroom. It's a sep or a penny bun or a porticini. It's a mushroom that's highly prized in cooking. And, and you kind of think, well, wait a minute, you know, there wouldn't have been a word for that for Jack in English. And in fact, O'Brien and Stephen are absolutely right. This mushroom was named and described by a French botanist in 1782, but not classified until 1821. But they did go back to Linnaeus's original work, Species Plantarum, and realized that, in fact, he had described this earlier here. So so really back to 1753. So Stephen, having read that work, knows what this is. But a lot of folks in general usage don't, other than the people who know to pick them and cook them, and that this is one that won't kill you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, never underestimate the ability of the British to be centuries behind everybody else in fine cuisine ingredients. I, I don't think I actually ate an olive until I was at least 10. So, you know... <laughs> If it had been a species of potato, Jack might have been across it, but you never know. And Jack is 
genuinely puzzled and admiring of Stephen at this point. First of all, this, this person speaks fluently this other language, a language I'd never heard of, and he speaks this philosophical language of classifying and naming natural things. This is so, so alien to Jack. And he's got this question in mind, and he can only bring out the first word of it, which is, how? And then the text goes on, how, began Jack, looking at Stephen Maturin with candid affection. He had eaten two or three pounds of mutton, and the boar, on top of the sheep, brought out all his benevolence. How? But, says the text, finding that he was on the edge of questioning a guest, he filled up the space with a cough and rang the bell for the waiter, gathering the empty decanters over to his side of the table. The question was in the air, however, and only a most repulsive or indeed a morose reserve would have ignored it. And Stephen very kindly pick, picks up on it then and says, well, I was brought up in these parts. I'm like, this, this is a lovely moment for a couple of reasons. First of all, as you say, we're, we're getting into not only O'Brien's fondness for natural philosophy, but also this really great signal of how much he admires and wants to document the manners of the time. The idea that it's not okay, it's not a polite form of conversation to question a guest. And perhaps he's demonstrating how conversation might have worked then. And Stephen, without hearing the question, has got the good manners to save the conversation, to save Jack from embarrassment and answer this unasked question. A few weeks ago, we were chatting to our friend Jeff Hunt, who had actually spent some time sitting down with with, with Patrick O'Brien. And I remember Jeff talking about how O'Brien's preferred mode of conversation was not question and answer. He had good reasons for not liking to be uh, to be inquired into, and that he preferred people to be at the end of a pen and a postage stamp. And maybe we're hearing already that kind of cultural affinity that O'Brien has for a world when question and answer was not okay and reserve and kind of polite distance was the name of the game when it came to conversations nice well steven in in answer to jack's unasked question describes having grown up in catalonia you know not not here on this island but on the mainland there and using the language more than he did irish before he got to university um and Jack says that, well, Stephen clearly used his childhood wisely, you know, to become such a fluent Catalan speaker. And Stephen protests that he did not. Um, Stephen talks at length about the history of natural philosophy, where he had grown up on the, on the mainland. He talks about how many opportunities he did not take advantage of while he was there, you know, opportunities that he didn't even realize until he got back to Ireland and became more involved in natural philosophy. And he had agreed to come back to Menorca, which is close to the mainland, this island off of it, um, you know, close to where he grew up with his patient, old Mr. Brown, to make up for these missed opportunities. And there's a, there's a nice little ingredient that's going to turn comic later on. Um, Jack says, oh, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, do, do you mean the naval officer, the one here in Mahon who loves music and sings and plays? And Stephen says, no, my Mr. Brown, who ends in an E, was an old Irish gentleman suffering from tuberculosis who died at sea on the way to Menorca. And we, this is filling in the backstory for Stephen, and it's not entirely an easy or a happy backstory. And we're going to hear some more about this, this chapter. Stephen goes on and says, he and Dr. Flory had opened Mr. Brown up and found that the Irish doctors had been too optimistic. His condition was too far along. And Jack goes from admiring Stephen's really alien levels of language and philosophical skill to being shocked 
at how Stephen speaks very, very coldly and candidly about cutting this guy up or performing a post-mortem, in other words. And Stephen says, well, they did it as an autopsy to, to, to be able to tell Mr. Brown's friends why he died. And I really like how Stephen very quickly has got an instinct for how squeamish Jack is going to be. And he starts out this sentence where he was clearly about to say, we found this enormous great tumor in his abdominal cavity. And he holds that back and he says, ah, the, the disease was too far along. Very, very nice little bit of incipient friendship there between Stephen and his particular friend. Yeah, I do. I do love that. And, and you know, we'll see a bit more of that as the canon goes on here, both the friendship and the squeamishness. Right. Well, Jack, you know, sees this as a great stroke of luck or as O'Brien would describe it, how the tide went in and out. Yeah. So the tide has turned for Jack. He's gotten lucky. And he tells Stephen that if he'd known that he was a surgeon, he would have been very tempted to press him. You know, in this this whole idea of the press, which runs throughout the canon, I mean, this is the Royal Navy back at the time, you know, having the right by law to to basically take by force uh, any eligible seamen, uh, you know, or people they said eligible men of seafaring habits between eighteen and fifty five years. Um, but as as we know in history, as we know in the canon. These press gangs often exceeded that authority. <laughs> they, they extended that authority loosely because there was such a huge demand for people to have on ship. So, you know, Stephen, however, points out with a bit of attitude, not that, you know, he'd be upset about pressing. He doesn't touch that at all, but he, he wants to point out very strongly that he is not a surgeon. He is a physician. You know, and I, I think I had typed Dr. Flory earlier. It's probably Mr. Flory, the surgeon. And Stephen, however, would be Dr. Matron, you know, probably on multiple fronts. <laughs> His scientific degrees here, as well as being a physician. Um, Jack apologizes for his sad blunder. He's, you know, like, didn't mean to call you a surgeon. I see you are a physician then. And, and in kind of a bantering way, he tells Stephen that the Sophie really needs a surgeon and can't find one and ask if he can't just tempt Stephen to join him, you know, telling him all about all the birds and fishes, monstrously strange fishes, all the natural phenomena that he'd have this opportunity to see if he came aboard and sailed with Jack and the opportunity to earn prize money. And I think he realizes now that, that Stephen is quite the scholar. And he says, well, even Aristotle would have been moved by prize money. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think Jack is completely expecting this physician to blow him off. Yeah. But to Jack's surprise, Stephen sounds actually a bit interested. And he tells Jack that he's done some dissection. He knows the usual surgical operations, but he doesn't know naval hygiene or, as he says, the particular maladies of semen. Mm. Right. Beneath which there's a whole litany of different categories of conditions that he hasn't come across. Uh, and I love this response that Jack has. He says, oh, don't never strain at gnats of that kind. And Mike, it's funny. This is one of these things that I had blown straight past on many, many previous readings. This is a biblical reference, right? It, it really is. Yeah. In, in Matthew 23, verse 24, Jesus is kind of railing out at the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, and, and the actual verse in the New International Version is, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And, and he's saying essentially they're hypocrites because, you know, if you get back to Leviticus and, and you know, the real detail of the law, there were certain insects that were uh 
deemed to be impure. They're, you know, if you will, not kosher. And so they would strain the water taken out of a well through something like a cheesecloth uh, in order to make sure there are no gnats there. But they were were uh, found uh, doing a lot of other things, you know, being deceitful, <laughs> oppression, lust. So it's like, oh, wait a minute, you're straining at gnats, but swallowing camels. And But Jack is, you know, don't strain at gnats of this sort, right? <laughs> yeah, little, little tiny things. And oh. he, he goes on then to describe just how little of a gnat, just how tiny of an issue this probably is, the idea of, you know, permission and resources and stuff. He says, most ship surgeons are untrained surgeons, mates, butchers, apprentices, basically, who know nothing about surgery, nothing about physic, but learn along the way practicing on cement, hoping that there's a butcher or somebody like that on board to help them. And... Jack asks Stephen to consider it and says it would give me really, really great pleasure if we could be shipmates. And it's important, I think, and we'll hear more about this later on, that the two are still sizing up whether they are both respectively serious about this offer. Jack is not sure whether this is really being heard as something more than just banter and pleasantry. Stephen is hopeful, of course, but he hasn't quite heard enough yet to know whether Jack is being genuinely sincere. And meanwhile, as as they're talking, Jack gets his orders from Captain Hart, telling him to prepare to convoy 12 merchant ships to Sardinia. That's actually not far from Menorca, but it's the Italian territory in the Western Med there. Um, This this package of orders describes the secret signal for one ship with flags and guns to identify itself to another and commands him. We get this nice humorous reference to the the impossibility of officialdom. Uh, commanding him to travel fast but not endanger any masts or yards or sails and to shrink from no danger but on the other hand incur no risk whatsoever and informing him of the arrival or the impending arrival of a lieutenant dylan arriving in on the burford to replace mr baldick as his first and only lieutenant aboard this tiny ship sophie yeah, Jack's reading these orders. In the meantime, Stephen's actually off playing on Jack's violin yeah. in the corner of the room to give him a little privacy. And Jack tells Stephen this good news that Lieutenant Dillon, a, a really good man who's distinguished himself in action against three privateers, is going to be joining the Sophie. He says, however, that Dillon's action you know, while very credible and many of them talked about it, was never officially recognized and therefore Dylan did not get promoted for it. And and Jack doesn't really doesn't understand this because Dylan's related to a peer. And and he says that, you know, dozens of men have been promoted for much less, including himself. And he and Stephen are talking and Jack tells him how Jack was merely wounded when they took the Genereux and he was the only surviving lieutenant in that battle. So, you know, it was kind of like, so I'm, I'm up for promotion because I'm the last one in. And in Jack's mind, he's just thinking, well, it's just bad luck for Dylan here. Yeah, indeed. There's a couple of little interesting things lurking in the background. First of all, th- this connection to the action between um, the, the Navy and the French ship Genereux, the, the capture, this gives, this is the first moment, I think, where we get a clue, a really direct clue about the close connection that O'Brien's going to continue to make between Jack Aubrey and Thomas Cochrane. There's an interesting connection here, a bit of parallel writing between the world of Jack Aubrey and the world of Thomas Cochrane. The Genereux had indeed captured the Leander. That was the action that they're talking about here. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, the Genereux, a French man of war, captured the British figure at the Leander. Later on in her career, the Genereux in return was captured by the British 
And the officer commanding the prize crew that took the genera back to Mahon was Thomas Cochrane. Nice. So via a, a related route, we've got this overlap between the history, the fictional history of Jack Aubrey and the real-life history of Thomas Cochrane. We're going to hear some more about the connection to Thomas Cochrane later on. So that, that's the first point, a little, little Cochrane alert right there. The second thing that I really liked here is this reference to Dylan. And Dylan's Irish. We know that Stephen is Irish. And, and Jack is pretty tone deaf about what that might mean. He chats away merrily about how well, it's a mystery to me how Dylan had this bad luck, meaning that he didn't get promoted. And I think we're hearing this through the ears of Stephen Maturin. And I think as readers, we're meant to go, yeah, Jack, if you thought about it for more than a couple of minutes, you might realize why as an Irishman, and particular as it happens, an Irishman with a connection to the, uh, to the rebellion, uh, it might have been difficult for the powers that be to promote a lieutenant with the personal history of James Dillon. <sighs> but Jack likes to believe in his ideal version of the Royal Navy, as we've said in other episodes in the show. And uh, I, th- I think he's representing that version of the ideal Navy to Stephen as he chats about Dillon and his bad luck. Well, you know, I think you're exactly right, Ian. And, and I think Stephen has kind of heard this and is thinking about that because the next thing that Stephen asks Jack about is to say, well, you know, in becoming a surgeon... Uh, you know, an officer, aren't there O's and expenses and going to London to become a naval surgeon? And so I can see Stephen thinking, oh, wait a minute, I'd have to take an oath. And so, you know, Jack and Stephen talk about that a little bit. And Jack says, oh, no, 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 no. There's no swearing in like a lieutenant who does have to go to London to the Admiralty and does have to swear, Jack says, about allegiance and supremacy and utterly renouncing the Pope. So here we go. <laughs> I think you're, you're spot on here. You know, he says, however, a surgeon, unlike a lieutenant, is appointed by a warrant. And but then Jack says, but but you would not object to taking an oath, however. And I think Jack is just making conversation. Yeah. Um, but then he realizes he says, oh, my gosh, I've kind of stepped on it because that's a very personal thing. And then Jack, by way of explaining what he meant, tells a story about a former shipmate who had been a big Bible reader who had decided, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't take O's because of a, a part of the of the Bible that he had read there about using the Lord's name. And um, but as he's telling this story, Jack is also talking about how, you know, separate from this oath taking, you know, it was just, you know, he just couldn't stand being around this guy. He smelled. He was always touching his face. It was just <laughs> about all the irritants. And I think O'Brien's pointing a little bit, as you said, Ian, this idea about, you know, when you get on small ships and you're in close quarters, the kinds of people you're kind of around make a big difference here. So I think, you know, Brian's just giving us kind of a little thought there. But Jack comes back and says, that's what I meant when I said you would not object to taking an oath, that you're not an enthusiast. Yeah. Yeah. Like my, you know, my former shipmate who, you know, was this Bible-thumping enthusiast. Stephen says, of course he's not. Stephen says he was raised by a philosopher. And, you know, he was taught by him that oaths are childish. They're not practical if they're made voluntarily. If, I, if you know, I'm doing this, you know, how can you believe me? And they're to be evaded or ignored if they're imposed. So it's like, you know, really. And you know, he thinks few people, he says, even sailors are weak enough to believe in Earl Godwin's piece of bread. So we've got, boy, a couple references here. This is O'Brien in fine style with these just, you know, just throwing a little word here, a little phrase here um, for the readers. 
Yeah, it's great. Uh, the, the, this idea of a, a philosoph, it's the, the French word for philosopher, meaning anybody who's kind of part of the enlightenment, who's part of the kind of liberal, free-thinking intellectual elite that was around in the late 18th century. And Earl Godwin's piece of bread, Mike, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that's interesting. This is, you know, so, so for these people who are just, you know, like it's all about the supremacy and efficacy of human reason, to believe a story like Earl Godwin's piece of bread. And this is a disputed story. You know, some people call it a myth. Some people say, no, 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 I think this might have happened. Uh, Really kind of comes down to belief a little bit here. In 1053, a story in which King Edward the Confessor confronts Godwin, the Earl of Wessex, about, you know, a year's earlier murder of Edward's brother, Alfred. Um, And Earl Godwin supposedly sitting there at table with... um, the king denies any involvement and says in the story, if he's guilty, may the piece of bread that he's eating be his last. And the legend says, you know, he ate that bread and choked to death on it. So, you know, it's like, ah, if you, you know, if you say something that isn't true and you've said it kind of in an oath way, you'll be struck down dead. (laughs) Yeah. So Steve is saying even, even sailors are not weak enough to believe in the kind of a a superstitious thing, like the the story of the piece of bread. Thank you. How little Stephen knows about sailors. Oh, yes. And we're going to learn all the way through the canon. So as as they're both kind of trading remarks here about philosophy and about superstition, maybe this highlights the fact that they're both listening for hidden meanings here. And Stephen says, I I need to match your candor and and I'm really tempted by the offer. If his patient, Mr. Brown, had brought money or a letter of credit, then his servant had made off with it. Stephen is really on his uppers here. The wars cut him off from his inheritance, what he calls his patrimony in Spain. And he says that I was telling the truth earlier on when I when I said I hadn't eaten so well in some time. And what that means is not that he hasn't had nice food. He hasn't had food much at all. Right. And it's, Jack goes from being amazed to being sorry, and he's kind of patting his pocket and saying, if what he calls the res augusta is pressing, and can I help you out here? And Stephen says, no, 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 no. Meanwhile, they they carry on. and Jack tells Stephen about the pay and conditions for being a surgeon. And Stephen says, I'm not so worried about what the size of the stipend is, but I'm worried that maybe I have to get some kind of appointment and get instruments and drugs and medical necessities. And Jack says, well, there is Mr. Flowery, or perhaps Dr. Flowery, a shore that you can go and talk to. Then go talk to Flowery, come and dine on the Sophie, and then sail aboard the Sophie as a guest while we figure it all out and I get you an acting order. And Mike, there's another little Latin tag here, and we already know enough to dig into Latin tags when O'Brien drops one in there. Res Augusta, what's that all about? Yeah, this is this is um, from the Roman poet Juvenal, Satire three. And, and it literally means, and the full phrase is a little longer, limited circumstances at home or, you know, what's really taken to mean financial strain. But it's kind of interesting because in this long satire, particularly in this section three, the poem talks about the limited circumstances, if you will, of a person leaving Rome and condemning Rome. Uh, because largely that slave labor has come in and that decent people can no longer make a living, but it's not make a living like go out and work for wages because they look down upon that. It's that, you know, in their mind, this kind of patron-client relationship is now being degraded and turned into commerce. And so it's kind of fascinating to me as we're reading this, we're thinking about, you know, Jack's Telling Stephen, you know, that the, you know, the, the pay for a surgeon is embarrassing for a learned man. 
And so it's, and you know, the press gang. So we've got a little bit of this going on here at the same time. And we get kind of Stephen's attitude towards money. I mean, as they're talking about this, Stephen's saying, you know, you know, I don't really care about money. You know, Linnaeus could travel 5,000 miles of Lapland living upon 25 pounds. Well, that's five months of a surgeon's pay. So, you know, fascinating, this reference. <laughs> Oftentimes we find as we, as we sort of, you know, take a look at these Easter eggs that O'Brien had a lot in mind there. And, you know, it's something that we can, there, there are lots of references online, including, you know, a Patrick O'Brien Wikipedia, get the definition, limited circumstances at home, and plenty of things that let you say, if you want to dig a little bit more, you can find out neat things like this. And this intellectual curiosity is still going between the two of them here. Stephen agrees with Jack that the trip might be interesting. The job might be, to use his phrase, amazingly philosophical. And th- this is the key phrase here, Mike. This is, the, this is the heart of where all of O'Brien's writing is going to go. He says, for a philosopher, a student of human nature, what could be better? The subjects of his inquiry shut up together, unable to escape his gaze, their passions heightened by the dangers of war, the hazards of their calling, their isolation from women, and their curious but uniform diet. And by the glow of patriotic fervour, no doubt, he says this with a bow to Jack, um, it is true that for some time past, I have taken more interest in the cryptogams than in my fellow men, but even so, a ship must be a most instructive theatre for an inquiring mind. Nice. Oh, and I'm really, a big smile on my face. He's absolutely nailed this. That This theme for O'Brien of how uh, he, he's interested in exploring human nature when they're all bottled up together. During a trip that Patrick O'Brien made to the US back in 1993 to promote the novels, um, he's reported as having said to a, a, a meeting or a seminar or a presentation with a wide smile on his face, he says, on a ship, Everything is enclosed. The people are right on top of each other and can't get up and walk away. The function of the novel is, here are his words, the exploration of the human condition. That's really what it's all about. The ship is like a hothouse, Sir Brian. You raise the temperature, especially in war, and everything grows faster. So this is now not only O'Brien's motivation for writing the story, this is our motivation, I think, for paying attention to this at the level that goes beyond just kind of cannonballs and top gallants. This is like the the real meat of where he's going to take this story. In the context of this era, when there's so much going on, we've got the French Revolution and now we've got Napoleon, we've got a, a story that is just like Jane Austen, whom Patrick O'Brien admired, just like Jane Austen. This is about the human condition. And Mike, I can remember when we spoke to our friend Jeremy many episodes ago, who had kindly agreed to read the books as a as a newcomer. He said, this was the paragraph when I got really interested. And, and we've had some of our, our listeners and friends on Facebook and Twitter ask, hey, did Jeremy ever continue reading? And the answer is yes, he did. <laughs> just to, Just to let them know. Well, Jack is really happy now. He's got Dylan as lieutenant. He has a Dublin physician as Sophie's surgeon. And then it, it occurs to him, he asks Stephen if he knows Dylan since they're both Irish. And Stephen says, well, what's his Christian name? And Jack says, James. And the text says, no, said Stephen deliberately. I do not remember to have met any James Dylan. So, 
we get this very odd, stilted way for Stephen to reply to that line. And I, I just really wonder what's going on. Yeah. So, Mike, now that we've kind of pushed the dish of, of, of boar's face and ragged mutton to one side, and perhaps Jack and Stephen have drawn the cloth and they might be about to drink a glass of port, uh, why don't we take a break to do something similar? And we'll join our listeners back together after this break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you guys have all taken your napkins, patted your lips. We've finished up this big dinner at the Crown, and we're back on the Sophie with Jack. And Jack's telling the master, Mr. Marshall, that he's got this guest that's going to be coming aboard, a physician, a great man in the philosophical line. You know, we're thinking like a, a scholar, a scientist, you know, and, and he's hoping that if indeed this guest likes it, he'll stay as the Sophie's surgeon. Marshall is delighted. Um, you know, he points out that the crew's been a little worried about not having a surgeon and that there are only two true physicians in the entire fleet, one on the flagship, you know, kind of, you know, there to the Admiral, and one on Gibraltar. And then I, I, I love this because Jack asked the carpenter, Mr. Lamb, uh, to please go down and to take the bulkhead in Jack's cabin, you know, to sort of move this wall because he wants to make more room for a guest here. And Jack says, you know, you might be able to shift it forward as much as six inches. <laughs> so here we go. Oh, what a commodious accommodation. And that extra yeah. half a foot here <laughs> in Stephen's sleeping room. Well, we're going to learn some more about just how little room there is for everybody else besides Stephen in just a second. But O'Brien's enjoying now making us feel if not at home, then at least feeling like we're on familiar ground. He's telling us a little bit more about the environment of the ship and the environment of the ship as an organization. He sits there going through the Sophie's books, the records, the accounts. He, Jack, is not very good with figures. And since he's still a few bottles into his day from the the meal he had with Stephen Matron earlier on, he's not entirely going to focus, so he loses his way a bit. And his instincts tell him that perhaps he should not entirely trust the purser Mr. Ricketts, who comes up with all these smooth explanations about what's going on with these figures that don't tell Jack anything. He turns to the muster book, the book in which we record who's in the crew and who are the officers and what officers and when did they arrive and what's their status and what's their rating. And Jack points to Mr. Ricketts's son and traces his clearly illegal history of promotion um, dating back a long way from times when he was clearly just kind of held on somebody on, on the ship's books at the... Uh, at the behest of some other indulgent captain. And Jack emphasizes that the promotions that Ricketts Jr. had got at these various stages were a change in rating. And he's emphasizing this because a rating is given by a captain, not given by the Admiralty, and therefore can be undone by another captain. And the look on Jack's face is enough to show Mr. Rickett that if he tries any more purser's tricks, the captain could disrate his precious son, turn him before the master, and to use the phrase that's clearly buzzing in Jack's brain at this moment, flog the tender pink skin off his back every day for the rest of the commission. So he's vicariously, fictitiously holding this guy's son hostage to say, ah, 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 don't you pull any tricks with me. From that point on, of course, 
the explanations become a bit more transparent and a bit better and a bit more detailed. And I, I think O'Brien's done a really nice job here of combining a bit of exposition about the naval world and purses and muster books with his nice bit of characterization about Jack, who's canny enough to spot somebody who might take advantage of him, at least when he's at sea. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Nicely, nicely done. You know, and, and this is this is kind of Jack's first introduction to bookkeeping. Uh, he doesn't care for it much. And he's got to review all these incredible numbers of purchases of food and ordnance and ships, parts and receipts and everything else. And, and finally, he's had enough for the day, even though Mr. Ricketts is, is in, in a, you know, much better form now. And he tells Mr. Ricketts about the prize agent's nephew, who's going to be Jack's clerk. And tells Ricketts to please take care of the clerk and, you know, kind of establishes with Ricketts that, you know, having the prize agent well with the ship is really good for the ship. And Ricketts immediately recognizes, yeah, that's a really good deal. Um, and these are guys, I believe, if, you know, as Jack's looked past this muster book and, and, and the ship's log later, you know, these guys are not ones who've had prizes before. And we know sailors love prize money here. So... Um, they go up on deck. Jack sees his new clerk, Mr. Richard, that he was just talking about, and a black seaman, Alfred King, who comes with him. Jack had made that deal, saying, you know, I'll take I'll take Richard as long as he brings an able seaman. Now, Jack asks King if he can hand reef and steer, you know, a phrase we visited in chapter one here. King smiles, grunts, and shakes his head. Yes. Well, you know, Jack's up here on the quarterdeck, he's in command, and he expects something a little bit more formal. So he asks King if he has a civil tongue in his head. Um, King's obviously upset, and Richards explains that the Moors, the King had been captured by the Moors, and they had cut out King's tongue. Boy, one of those moments that, <laughs> socially awkward in any age. <laughs> oh, Yeah. So Jack is very taken aback and, and arranges to have them, you know, nicely escorted to their workstation. <laughs> and so it's funny, you know, we hear so many comparisons, including O'Brien's own uh, between his work and Jane Austen's. But Ava Sander, when she was on the show, pointed out that his work is also a lot like Charles Dickens. You know, yeah. there are so many fascinating second, secondary characters who bring these tales to life. And it's funny how we we see some of them kind of throughout the series. You know, you're really recurring characters, and we'll, and we'll put a little pin in this. Some like King take a very long time to reappear, but will show up when you least expect them. Yeah, and given the order in which we've been doing this, ladies and gents, you all know Why? that not many episodes ago, when we were covering the reverse of the medal, who should show up? At the the just in case of spoilers, at the big denouement, the big public scene at the end of Reverse of the Medal, but a mute black bosun's mate, and King has stays in the background in O'Brien's little panoply there of secondary characters for ten novels, and then comes back. This guy is playing, as they say, some long ball, right. This is all happening in in one particularly busy day here, and Jack's been aboard. He's been looking at these hands coming aboard. He's been squaring away things with his purser. Now he's in the cutter and he's on his way to the dockyard and he's got some significant business to take care of with the dockyard in this chapter. He notices that the bosun, Mr. Watt, isn't as pleased to have this other prime hand as Jack is. And Watt explains that 
in this trim, home-like brig of the Sophie, there isn't room to stow more men. This is a bit of a signal about how differently the standing officers of the Sophie have viewed their service compared with how differently Jack views his service. This confirms his impressions of the Sophie because they, they talk about the Sophie as being a three-watch brig. And uh, uh, Brian's going to explain this for us shortly, but my watch systems in the Navy are normally based on two watches, four hours on, four hours off, more or less. In a three-watch system, you get to have two watches resting and one watch on deck. So if it's uh, if the watches are three hours long, for example, you get three hours in your bunk and then another three hours in your bunk and then three hours on deck. So you can spend two-thirds of your time not on watch, which is great if you want an easy life, great if you're willing to sail the ship sort of easily and softly with just a few hands on deck, and it's great if you have room for two-thirds of the uh, watchkeeping crew to be below asleep at a time. And this premise is at odds with how jack is planning to man and sail and fight the sophie nice well they get to the dockyard and mr brown that is jack's naval officer acquaintance not stephen's autopsy and former patient oh, no. <laughs> brown with no e uh, actually runs the dockyard so this place where you know ships get resupplied all the things that a ship might need there in terms of, of parts and and, you know, uh, Mr. Brown greets Jack and Jack says that it's the first time that he's seen Mr. Brown inside his kingdom, Mr. Brown's kingdom. And Brown says, yes, it's commodious, ain't it? But he wishes that it had higher walls. He says, and O'Brien writes, that, you know, the too many thieves come in at night, perhaps sent by their captains trying to steal his spars. And then Jack says, and here's a quote from the text, it's my belief, Mr. Brown, that you will never be really happy until there is not a king's ship left in the Mediterranean and you can walk around your yard mustering a full complement of paint pots every day of the week, never issuing out so much as a tree nail from one year's end to the next. So, you know, it's it's great. You know, Jack, this newly appointed officer, kind of, you know, teasing Mr. Brown running the dockyard here. But Mr. Brown kind of, in almost a fatherly way, kind of, you know, takes Jack by the sleeve and and counsels him, you know, let me tell you, young man, you know, most good captains, you know, really all great captains never want anything from a dockyard. You know, they they meet their own needs. They're very careful with the king's stores. (laughs) These are not yours. You know, your parts and pieces. These are the king's. And he says, and O'Brien writes, you know, that, that these great captains care for his sails far more than his own skin. And he never sets his royals, nasty, unnecessary, flash, gym crack things. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, boy, we're this is going to be fun to watch play out here. You know, and he tells him that these captains, these are the ones, you know, that that he writes his reports about. And these are the ones that get promoted. Out, he says he knows Jack is not at all like this because he watched the great care that Jack took bringing in the general. So, you know, as you had pointed out earlier, Ian, this is putting Jack kind of in Cochrane's role back yeah. in that time here. Uh, but he does say, and Jack hasn't asked, he does say that he might be able to spare some paint, a very little paint for the Sophie. And, and Jack thanks him for the paint, but says, you know, actually, I, I didn't come here for anything for the Sophie. I came here to borrow your duettos, your pieces of music here. And he tells him that he has a friend that's going to be going with him on the cruise that would particularly like to hear Brown's B minor duetto. Brown is delighted. You know, he says, you know, he's he's lent them out to Molly Hart. 
but he will get them back and deliver them to Jack tomorrow before he sails. Jack thanks him, sends his best respects to Brown's wife and daughter. And, you know, we're kind of seeing fascinatingly Jack in his element here. Jack is, you know, in his leadership element, Jack in his kind of management element, Jack in his interpersonal element. You know, he knows this about Brown, that, you know, Brown does not like people that come take things out of his yard. Jack's actually got some stuff on his mind to get there, as we'll find out. But he pays his first visit, asks for nothing. He kind of plays up on what we can see here is a musical friendship and, and, and this ability to joke between friends. And even though Jack may want something more after hearing Mr. Brown's speech, he only asks for this loan of music, which they both love. And sometimes asking for a favor especially a favor for a friend, you know, when it's not doing anything for me, is a nice way to strengthen a relationship. So well done, Jack. It's great work. And now we get to the beginning of the next day. This is going to be another busy day. And uh, we, should, we should stick in a pin in the fact that O'Brien is going to sort of start this day three ways with three different characters. And I'm really interested in this uh, because he started to play, for me anyway, I think he started to play with who's the hero of this story. And we've absolutely been with Jack so far. And O'Brien begins this section of this chapter as the sun rises. We're back with Jack and we are starting out believing that Jack is still the focus of the story. We are in Jack's internal narrative. And we are his, his first, first word as he's woken up is a, is, is a blasphemy. Christ, said Jack, as the shattering din of the carpenter's hammer prized him from his hold on sleep. And we learned that he'd been up till dawn thinking about the ship and planning stuff. He'd gone to bed, but the crew thought that he had gotten up when they'd seen him on deck at dawn. And now he's faced with them doing all of these adjustments to the uh, to the carpentry in, in the ship that he actually asked them to do the previous day. He quiets the noise to get some time for his kind of head to recover. He wonders why he'd been so talkative the prior day. So now he says, my throat is all wrecked. And now he reflects that he'd invited a man he doesn't know to share his cabin, this very small cabin, you know, luxuriously extended by six whole inches on this very small ship that he hasn't seen. He pondered, says the text, gloomily upon the extreme care that should be taken with shipmates, cheek by jowl, very like a marriage, that the inconvenience of pragmatic, touchy, assuming companions, incompatible tempers, mewed up together in a box, and then he muses about this idea of being kind of bundled up with strangers, effectively. And that takes him off in this little interior monologue of Jack's to a remembrance of the trigonometry lessons that he had with his neighbor, Queenie, this young woman who had tutored Jack. Uh, Mike, this is a, a, a nice moment here as he kind of recounts the trigonometry lessons he had with Queenie. Queenie, we're going to hear from later on. Uh, Queenie was a real person. Queenie's full name was Hester Maria Elphinstone. She wasn't born Elphinstone. She later married in 1808, married um, Elphinstone, who was Viscount Keith. But Queenie had been Jack's neighbor in her early life. We, we say here in the uh, Patrick O'Brien universe, um, the real Queenie, this lady Hester, was due to become as a rare, I think she was in her 40s by the time she married Lord Keith, was due to become the wife, the second wife of this great admiral. And we have this nice little reflection back on Jack's childhood and Jack in a, in a process of learning something that he finds pretty intractable, which is trigonometry. And um, Jack at one point is trying to 
think about the Sophie as an oblong box, and he's trying to sort of render in his mind a, a picture of the geometry of the ship. And this is a nice example of how O'Brien is tying together paragraphs and pages as he changes subjects. Here, we've got the trig box of the past compared to today's ship, also seen as a box. And Jack now, as he kind of reflects on this, brings these thoughts together and says, I'm pretty sure that when I think about the forces and the size of the rig, this ship is underpowered. And this is something we're going to get into later in the chapter, probably in our next episode. He knows that the ship is underpowered. She's going to sail poorly with the wind behind her. And by the way, sailing with the wind behind you is how you're going to be sailing when a potential prize is running away from you. And the crew, he thinks, aren't really fit for that job. The crew resemble their former captain. Uh, a good, sound, quiet, careful, unaggressive commander who never set his royals. As brave as could be when set upon, says the text, but the very opposite of a Sally Rover. And Mike, uh, Sally Rover, this is just dropped in like we're all supposed to know what a Sally Rover is. What, what exactly was a Sally Rover again? Yeah, in, in the 17th century, it, Sally Rovers were this dreaded band of Barbary Corsairs, or as we might say, you know, Barbary pirates, or, you know, as, as the Turks might say, a lot of them were Turkish privateers, but they <laughs> actually formed a Republic of Sally on the Moroccan coast. So, you know, a long line of, of dread pirates and privateers, you know, kind of out there preying on the ships of many nations. Yeah. So Jack reflects on these Sally Rovers and reflects that if discipline could be combined with the spirit of a Sally Rover, it could sweep the ocean clean. And this is part of the sort of the naval character of Jack Aubrey. If I can use naval discipline and a bit of this kind of buccaneering swagger in a place like the Mediterranean, there are rich, rich pickings. And he can't help think about the prize money. Um, Jack thinks in the similar line, if he can combine some better sailing qualities off wind with a couple of 12 pounders to use as chasers, as long as the ship's timbers can stand it, then this abstract box, this rather imperfect box, could be made more of a fighting vessel. And stick a pin in those two ideas. He needs more firepower and he needs more sailing power. And that's something that's going to exercise the creative genius of the naval commander that is Jack Aubrey. Nice. Nice. Well, Ian, you had said that, you know, this chapter sort of starts with the morning of three characters here. And so, you know, sure enough, we've just gone through this morning with Jack. And now O'Brien tells us that 10 minutes earlier at a higher altitude, so even earlier than Jack, the sun had reached Dr. Matron. And he had been deep, you know, deeply dreaming about this girl in Ireland. He could smell her perfume. He could feel and still feels her touch on him as, as he wakes up. But then he realizes the perfume is actually just the scent of some crushed flowers in the leaves that he's sleeping on. And, you know, realizing that, you know, his, you know, his feel over touch disappears. And O'Brien writes, his face reflected the most piercing unhappiness and his eyes missed it over. He had been exceedingly attached and she was so bound up with that time. He had been quite unprepared for this particular blow, striking under every conceivable kind of armor, and for some minutes he could hardly bear the pain, but sat there blinking in the sun. Christ, he said at last, another day. So here we have, oh, oh you know, oh, you know, this is this is that, you know, you're dying of thirst, 
you know, you're dreaming that you're in an oasis and you wake up on the desert again. <laughs> it's like, ah, it's funny because we're now at the first book and we we have with many of our listeners gone through, you know, 10 more. And we remember Jack having a dream yeah. <laughs> here that he wakes up from. So we'll, we'll come back from this again. But it's fascinating, as you say, it how similar but different you know, these two characters have started their morning here and a second one now, you know, basically starting his morning with a dream and a blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this is, I mean, Jack was irritated and hungover, I think. Right. S- Stephen is in the grip of a pretty black mood here. And mm-hmm. by the way, he's not just a little bit famished. He's been living in this empty room in this castle for days now. He's, a v- you know, he's destitute. And we're with him. And once again, we're being encouraged to sort of think not just about Jack's perspective on the story, but we're right there personally up close with Stephen in his point of view. Getting up, Stephen beats the dust off his clothes. He realizes the meat that he had stolen from yesterday's dinner and hidden in his coat pocket had oozed grease through the handkerchief and pocket. And he looks down and he's pretty disgusted by this. And he wonders why this upsets him so much. And as he eats the meat for his breakfast, the text says, for a moment... His mind dwelt on the theory of counter-irritants. Paracelsus, Cardan, Razes, or Rezes. I don't know how you pronounce those either. Uh, uh, Mike, this this idea of counter-irritants, is is there something lying behind that that we can think about? Well, well, it's interesting, because this counter-irritants in in medicine, you know, or in kind of, you know, physical treatment, is this idea that you know, you use inflammation or irritation in one area to lessen the discomfort or inflammation in another area. In, in other words, to kind of take your mind off of it. So, you you know, you might put um, if, if you have you know a lot of muscle pain like my bride does, you use something like menthol, which you know, then you know, activates the skin, which actually takes your mind off the muscle pain here. Now, the three people he names there are this very diverse group of great physicians and polymaths from very different countries at very different times. But they all had in common that they challenged long-held medical conventions because of their belief in the power of observation and, if you will, experimentation. And they practiced not you know, merely as everybody else around them did based on the received wisdom of the ages, but on what they learned and what was effective. And Stephen's doing the same thing here, right? He's, you know, uh, with, you know, he's kind of looking at himself and diagnosing what's going on here. He's got nothing to live on. He's escaped his landlord by sleeping outdoors. He's waking from this very irritating dream that has gotten past all his defenses and wounds him. And instead, his mind seizes on this grease-stained coat pocket, an irritant, you know, to distract him from his other problems and pains, you know, like his dream and his current situation. But it's fascinating. I could see where this was happening now. But then as we think about where we go in this novel, maybe we want to stick a pin in this, this idea Mm. about people using one pain to distract themselves from another and see if it comes back again, as O'Brien is often wont to do. Oh, Mike, that's a really, really great point. Really, really well found. Well done. And uh, by the way, I think I might have said castle before. Stephen's actually sleeping in the uh, the ruined apse of a chapel, St. Damien's Chapel, high above Port Mahon. And he's there because his landlord kicked him out. And we're still in this black mood with Stephen as he ponders on 
in this low emotional state the natural world around him and he sees um ants crawling across his once fine wig that now looks like an upturned abandoned bird's nest and he also in a very o'brien moment here sees a toad and kind of strokes the toad under the chin um wonders how he survives in this really parched landscape and the Stephen and the toad have a little moment they look at each other and they're both making their way through tough circumstances and perhaps there's a little bit of mutual admiration there and Stephen looks around at all these different elements of nature and he goes back and contemplates on Captain Aubrey's invitation was it merely he thinks Jack ashore and he, I think he's meaning by that, was it just the, the action of a sailor, a jack tar, spinning a bit of a line when they're on shore, as they often do, especially when there's drink going on? And we might, Mike, come back to this theme later on in the book as well, that resourceful, well-prepared, disciplined sailors at sea are sometimes not quite so disciplined and resourceful and well-prepared when they are on land. Having thought a little bit about the... Uh, the credibility of, of Jack Ashore, as we say, he goes on to think about his own situation. He had been sitting with Jack and they drunk four or five bottles. He's not sure whether if he goes along with this request and turns up and tries to accept it, he might actually be disappointed. And we pick up again, something that's going to come back again and again in the novels, this idea of not exposing yourself. I must not expose myself to an affront, he thinks. He's, he's thinking about the potential for a duel. He's thinking about the potential for a humiliation in the eyes of society. Um, you would be honor bound to call the person out if they had affronted you and kind of let you down and humiliated you. And we're back into uncertainty about whether this new friendship is really going to bond in the way that they had both supposed when they were sitting there eating their dinner together. So Stephen stands up and cleans down his coat. Um, he decides to go and see Flory to discuss what a naval surgeon's calling is all calling is all about. So he's at least taking Jack up on the first part of his ask. And as he walks down to town, the name that he remembers of James Dillon stops him in his stride. How could he have been thinking about him? Maybe he thinks it will turn out to be a different James Dillon. And Mike, with this very cinematic little cut implied here, we turn very quickly now from the perspective of Stephen to the perspective of James Dillon and his start to the same day. Yeah, it, it's great the way, you know, O'Brien just sets this up to hand off, as you say. And and sure enough, you know, what have we heard with Jack? What have we heard with Stephen? You know, so as we, um, you know, as we join James Dillon, he's saying, Chris Day, Christ again, a little bit different. He's humming, you know, He's humming under his breath while he's shaving, as O'Brien says, the red gold bristles off his face as the light comes through the scuttle of the Buford's number 12 gun port. So he's singing Christe Eleison, Kyrie, and it, it trails off a little bit. And O'Brien points out this was less piety in James Dillon than a way of hoping he should not cut himself. For like so many papists, he was somewhat given to blasphemy. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot going on here. Um, I don't know, first off, just a personal observation, yeah. too many folks who sing Carrie Eleison or Christy Eleison when they're shaving or, or even hum it, <laughs> certainly. Now, perhaps Richard Page, the bassist lead singer of Mr. Mister, you know, back ah. in December 1985 here. So, you know, or maybe any kid that ever had that cassette because it's a pretty powerful 80s driving uh, anthem here, a beautiful thing. But... 
Um, I, you know, I, I know fewer still who will sing or hum it in plain song like Lieutenant Dylan is doing here. But I do love how O'Brien has introduced us, as you pointed out, Ian, to these three mornings of these three main characters here um, and the beginning of their day. And, and I kind of love this thing that, you know, we talked about the human condition and human nature. Here is O'Brien writing that James Dillon is, is humming this in, in kind of a blasphemous way because papists are given to that. But of course, his first example was our, you know, young, upright, upstanding uh, Anglican Jack Aubrey. And I think, <laughs> I think O'Brien's taking a little poke at all of us at how we, you know, we kind of, um, you know, we say these things about other people, but in fact, they refer to all of us and refer to ourselves here. I love that. And, yeah. and, and there's probably even a little bit more going on here. What do you think? The, I, I think there is the. Um, and by the way, the, the, this this prayer that he's having, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. It's it's a very Catholic part of the liturgy. It's it's, yeah. it's a moment where, as Catholics, we all say, oh, "I'm I'm guilty, I have sinned." So uh, it's 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 a cultural, if you like, as well as a a kind of ritual landmark for Catholics to say, "Oh, if you know, if bad things have happened, it's because it's my fault." So he's got this little bit of you know Catholic guilt, as all we good Catholic boys have got. We we all get a high school diploma in guilt before we get to go to college. And meanwhile, he's getting ready to go and report to his new captain. Mm. A new captain, the text says, a man upon whom his comfort and ease of mind was to depend to say nothing of his reputation, career, and prospective advancement. And this is somebody else who's thinking ahead of time. When I go and see this person, Aubrey, Stephen is thinking, is he going to humiliate me by letting me down? Dylan is thinking, am I going to get a fair shake? Am I going to get the chance for distinction? Or am I going to get brushed off like I did with the promotion following that previous action? And he gets the help of a Marine. By the way, we're, we're, we're briefly painting the picture of the interior of a much bigger man of war, a frigate with many officers and many servants and room to move about. And on this, this occasion, room to shave. Um, a, a captain who's entertaining a girl in his cabin with the, with the story about the hard-boiled eggs. And he greets the officer of the watch... And the first lieutenant, so two more whole lieutenants on this ship, which is already two more than the Sophie's got. And they're looking out for the Sophie and they look at where she can be in the harbor. And Dylan strains his eye looking across the harbor, very big harbor in Mahon. He looks too high and he misses what is called the dwarvish vessel. She was only 150 tons, not 200. And we get this nice little dialogue um, about the origin of the Sophie and where she comes from. I like her little quarter deck, said the officer of the watch. She was the Spanish Vencejo, was she not? And as for being rather low, why? Anything you look at close to from a 74 looks rather low. Uh, this lieutenant says she was the Spanish Vencejo. And by the way, uh, we can look into this. Now, we know from what Orion and others have told us that the exploits of Aubrey are modeled on the exploits of Cochrane and that the brig Sophie is modeled on Cochrane's first independent command, the brig Speedy. And Speedy, by the way, was not a capture. So this is not an allusion to the real history of the Speedy. This is something else. Ventejo is a very Patrick O'Brien-ish pun. Ventejo is a Spanish word for swift, meaning the bird species, like swifts and swallows. So Ventejo means swift. So Ventejo the earlier name of this brig is in fact a bird name, which in English is also a homonym for the word speedy. So the name of the real ship, Ventejo, means swift, which is speedy. Do you smoke it, as they say? 
Yes. Uh, it, it had taken me ages to notice it. And I'm su- super happy that we found it. And O'Brien lying this, layering this really, really deep for us to discover if we have our eyes open for it. Thank you, Ian. That was that was a great catch. I love that. I love that. We'll reach out to to uh, our follower on Twitter, HMS Speedy. That, <laughs> that oh well, the first lieutenant and Dylan have been lo- looking at the ship and how small it is and discussing that. And and the lieutenant tells Dylan, you know, his quarters might be cramped on the Sophie, but you know, spending all his time conveying merchantmen up and down the Mediterranean is is likely to be very quiet and restful for him. And and Dylan's not quite sure how to take this remark here. And he can't think of a brisk retort to, you know, what he said, but what he said could also have been kind of a well-intentioned kindness. So Dylan simply asked for a boat to take him to the Sophie so he can report as early as possible. And, and I love this. The first lieutenant replies, a boat? God rot my soul. I shall be asked for the barge next thing I know. Passengers in the Beaufort wait for a bumboat from shore, Mr. Dillon, or else they swim. He stared at James with cold severity until the quartermaster's chuckle betrayed him. For Mr. Coffin was a great wag, a wag even before breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) And we've got another example of a character in this story being kind of stumped for a zinger. Yeah, James hasn't got a retort. And he's kind of frustrated with himself that he hasn't really got a comeback. And we also get this this habit that naval people have of, as as he says, practicing upon each other. He's being teased. And we see the sensitivities of the time, in particular, the sensitivities of James Dillon. He's quite ambitious. He's quite aware of his position. And he's quite prickly about it in his own way. So... He goes over to the Sophie, not having to swim, thankfully. He reports on board, and Jack is glad to see him, especially on this long day full of things needing to be done. And they chat over coffee. I chat. They converse over coffee about harbour duty and the draft from the harbour master and these replacements. So some of them were sent by, by Hart, who was in fact returning some of the draft that he'd originally taken. Remember, Hart had been practicing on Jack a little bit as well. And Jack says, I'm happy to have six hands to help us weigh because I want to get away and I want to get do that by 9.30. And he says, touching wood, wrapping the brass-bound wood of the locker. And another one of these little hints about superstition here. He tells Jack that, first of all, he's got to go ashore. He wants to get two long 12-pounders to use as chasers. And with or without them, he wants to get the Sophie out to sea to see how she sails in the present breeze before they depart with the convoy tonight. So they've just picked up these six men as they're getting ready to take off. Um, Poolings comes around and says that the Burford's boat is alongside and there's 18 more men waiting for them. And Dylan says that, you know, he didn't realize that there were any men for the Sophie. And Jack realized that this is the work of Lady Warren, the Admiral's wife that Molly Hart had introduced to him. So Molly Hart has sent some men. The Admiral's wife has sent some men and people are piling up on shore. Jack's trying to get out of here. He's telling Dylan, you know, when I get to shore, I'm going to wave a handkerchief if I can get these guns. Um, And then, you know, they've got all these new people there on the deck here. And they've got the carpenter with two crews kind of making a place for the new cannons in case they get them. And people are all on top of each other. And Jack finally has lost it. He says, what in God's name is this infernal confusion? Mr. Watt, the bosun here, this is a kingship, not the Margate Hoy. 
you, sir, get away forward. One of the guys who had stepped onto the quarter deck here. Um, and, and then Jack says, you know, I'm going ashore. And by the time I get back, this deck will present a very different appearance in the Margate Hoy. Ah, it's a great reference. Um, Margate is a town uh, on the uh, shore, the, what you might call the southern shore of the outward sides of the Thames Estuary, the northern shore of the county of Kent. And it's about 30 or 40 miles east of London. Margate is a nice, pretty seaside town. As the leisured classes started to enjoy using their leisure time a little bit in the 19th century, um, people used to take hoys, that is to say passenger ships, down the river. So as this is an early example of tourism, the Margate hoy would take people, middle class, you know, good timers out down the river for a day trip to Margate, where they could have a good time and then come back again. And there are pictures online of the Margate hoy you know, the deck busy with people partying and drinking and throwing up. So the Margate Hoy, a very disreputable kind of a ship, absolutely the very opposite of Jack's idea mm. of one of His Majesty's ships of war. Right. Not not a disciplined Sally Rover whatsoever. No, <laughs> far from being a disciplined Charlotte Sally Rover. And he's, he's reflecting on this as he's getting pulled to shore in his own rowboat here do they really imagine he thinks to himself do they really imagine i shall leave an able-bodied man on shore if i can cram him aboard of course he says their precious three watchers will have to go and here now o'brien digs in for us to this point about three watchers three watchers is luxury three watchers is indulgence but needs plenty of space below and he's computing i can get one man into 14 inches of hammock space the three watches are going to have to go. We're going to go to proper Man of War style. Two watches, watch and watch, four hours on, four hours off. And then maybe he thinks I can get all these guys below with their 14 inches. And then the text says it seemed to him very doubtful whether the Sophie possessed anything like that amount of room, whatever her official compliment might be. And he was still working at it when the midshipman called, Unrow, boat your oars. And they kissed gently against the wharf. So, Mike, Jack, Jack's had a busy time aboard the ship getting organized, but now he's about to encounter the naval establishment ashore here. And maybe this is the moment where we stop and think, hmm, what's going to happen next? Yeah, I mean, he's about to encounter the naval establishment ashore. He really badly wants these cannons and says, if ordnance will allow it. You know, he's yeah. already heard from Brown in a different dockyard. I'm not I'm not happy to be giving things away here. And, you know, he's leaving behind a little bit of a wreck on the safety. All these yeah. new people showing up, no plans for them. Jack trying to think, how do I squeeze them all together? And O'Brien kind of underscoring how disruptive this can be to this, you know, to the ship's company who've been enjoying this nice, homey, comfortable life on board the Sophie for a number of years. Yeah, the, the the crew are going to be tested, and if he gets his way with a bit more sailing power downwind, and if he gets his way with the new twelve pounders, then the ship's hardware are going to be tested as well. And, and meanwhile, Mike, what about James Dillon? He's been passed over as Jack has before, and he's he's not entirely devoid of chips on his shoulder as well. Right. How are these two guys going to get on now that they're in the same ship together? Yeah. And, and what was going on with Stephen Matron that, you know, this idea of, of how he answered Jack and then, you know, waking up and with these other things on his mind, you know, kind of chastising himself like, oh, my gosh, how could I have forgotten about James Dillon? And you know, we're wondering, what does that mean? 
Um, you know, do they know each other? How do they know each other? And as you say, we played off this symmetry of these three characters now. How is that going to play out going forward? Yeah, who's, who's going to become a real hero? Mike, right. there's, there's lots more to read about in Chapter 2 here. The only thing for it is to say, what, what do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would like that of all things. 